Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening. We're so excited to have acclaimed journalist and writer Ta-Nehisi Coates with us. Coates is a national correspondent for The Atlantic. In 2008, he wrote The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and An Unlikely Road to Manhood. His second book, Between the World and Me, was released in 2015, has been hailed as required reading by Toni Morrison, and earned him a MacArthur Genius Grant. Now you will definitely want to read this book, Between the World and Me, and you can not only get a copy of this book, but support The Katie Halper Show by making a donation. For $120, you get Between the World and Me, and an even better deal is if you pledge $150, you'll get Between the World and Me by ta Coates, but you'll also get Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. We're going to be bringing you an interview with Johan Hari on November 4th. And just so you know, a little bit about Johan Hari's book and how great it is. Glenn Greenwald called it the perfect antidote to the war on drugs. Bill Maher called it a terrific book. Naomi Klein called it superb journalism and thrilling storytelling. Noam Chomsky called it wonderful, I couldn't put it down. Amy Goodman called it an astounding book. Just call 212 209 2950 2120929950 and all you have to do when you call is you say you're giving a donation to support the Katie Halper show and that you would like either Tanahasi Coates's book Between the World and Me or you want the book package which will give you both Tanahasi Coates's book and Johan Hari's book Chasing the Scream or go to give to wbai.org that's give then the number 2 wbai.org and search for Tanahasi Coates search for Johan Hari and both of those will come up And it's because we want to bring you great shows without annoying advertising and without annoying things like interruptions like these asking you for money that we're asking you to support the show. Now maybe $150, $120 is a little steep for you. We we feel you. But you still want to support the Katie Halper Show, right? And you still want to get something great out of it? Awesome. Go to the same website or call for the comedy bundle to support the Katie Halper Show. Pay $50. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't be this cheap at all. It may have been a mistake when we were registering it. It should have been way more. You get a comedy DVD from Julie Goldman, a comedy DVD from Ted Alexandro. Ted Alexandro, just so you know, opened for Louis C.K. at Carnegie Hall. Comedy DVD from Justin Williams. And you get an amazing musical comedy CD from The Chalks. Want to make a smaller donation? That's fine. You just go to the same website, call the same number, and you tell them you want to make a donation to the Katie Halper Show and you want this amazingly funny musical comedy CD from the Christian country band, The Chalks, called Three Girls, Three Guitars, Three Chords. It's $30. When you go to give to WBAI.org, just search for Chalks, C-H-A-L-K-S, and that'll come up. Search for Comedy Bundle, and the other thing will come up. Let's say you already donated, but you still want to support the Katie Halper Show in a way that requires no money. Great news, you can. Please, please, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And then rate us and review us. Rate us and review us. You please, just give us a review. It could be two words, hopefully seven or something. Maybe even 12 words, who knows. Rate us, give us a couple stars, hopefully five, but we'll take whatever. See you next week when we'll be talking to Johan Hari. Hello, this again is the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening. Pretty soon, Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to be calling in. Wow. We're going to play a little excerpt of his book, Between the World and Me, which is, again, that is the book that we are offering you guys, okay? Between the World and Me. We are offering you this book. I was not jailed. I had proven to myself that there was another way beyond the schools and the streets. I felt myself to be among the survivors of some great natural disaster, some plague, some avalanche or earthquake. And now, living in the wake of a decimation and having arrived at a land that I once considered mythical, 
Everything seemed cast in a halo. The pastel Parisian scarves burned brighter. The morning odor wafting out of the boulangeries was hypnotic. And the language all around me struck me not so much as language, but as dance. Your route will be different. It must be. You knew things at 11 that I did not know when I was 25. When I was 11, my highest priority was the simple security of my body. My life was the immediate negotiation of violence within my house and without. But already you have expectations. I see that in you. Survival and safety are not enough. Your hopes, your dreams, if you will, leave me with an array of warring emotions. I am so very proud of you. Your openness, your ambition, your aggression, your intelligence. My job in the little time we have left together is to match that intelligence with wisdom. Part of that wisdom is understanding what you were given, a city where gay bars are unremarkable, a soccer team on which half the players speak some other language. What I am saying is that it does not all belong to you, that the beauty in you is not strictly yours and is largely the result of enjoying an abnormal amount of security in your black body. Perhaps that is why when you discovered that the killer of Michael Brown would go unpunished, you told me you had to go. Perhaps that is why you were crying, because in that moment you understood that even your relatively privileged security can never match a sustained assault launched in the name of the dream. Our current politics tell you that should you fall victim to such an assault and lose your body, it somehow must be your fault. Trayvon Martin's hoodie got him killed. Jordan Davis's loud music did the same. John Crawford should never have touched the rifle on display. Kajimi Powell should have known not to be crazy. And all of them should have had fathers. Even the ones who had fathers. Even you. Without its own justification, the dream would collapse upon itself. Hello, this again is the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening. And we are so thrilled to have with us the genius, literally the genius, not just me saying that. It's also the MacArthur Grant saying that. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks Although, for coming. Um, not, not quite a genius yet. You don't, you don't like when, you don't, when people say genius, you don't turn your head? <laughs> um, I, 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 um, when it's said, um, ironically, uh, oh. but any degree of earnestness added to that um, makes my skin crawl. You see, not just genius, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, but humble. He wins the Katie Halper award for He's humility. A humble genius. Humble genius. Oh, yeah. that should be the name of your next They oh, like that. Humble genius. I like it's great. that. Humble genius. <laughs> HG. But someone else HG's but someone else will have to to write it cuz obviously. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. But you're on you are here. We're so grateful to have you. I just want to introduce you to two people in the room with me. Gabe Pacheco, who's a co-host. Gabe Pacheco is from DC. Hi, Tanahasi. Um Hi. Happy to be here. Huge fan of your of your book. I just want you to know because you'll be hearing different voices, so now you'll right. know who who Gabe is. And now Reggie Johnson on the. Well, yeah, I'm I'm the engineer. You know, Tanahasi, um, I I actually remembered you. Um, you wrote when you were still um, writing for the Village Voice, and we actually interviewed you back during the days of Wake Up Call, back in the early aughts of the decade. Wow. Yeah, so, and you wrote an article about um, Russell Simmons and about um, branding and stuff like that, and I, and immediately I, th- I was a fan of your stuff since then. Okay. Love it first yeah. sight. So, Ta-Nehisi, okay. you're headed to France, but you're actually talking to us from California, is that correct? 
Yeah, I'm in San Francisco right now. And what are you doing there? Um, book touring. Nice. Oh, this is a stop. Yeah. And how's it going? Uh, I think it's going all right. I'm probably going out, but it's okay. Yeah. Well, I. <laughs> That's what it is, right? Right. And uh, when do you go to France? And can you tell us what you're you will be doing there? I'm going back uh, November 19th, and I'll be living in France. That's what I'll be doing in France. Nice. That's very French. Enjoying it. Just being <laughs> being present. Being present. Now, I, I want to ask you something. You, of course, as many people have, have talked about this honor, Toni Morrison said that she'd been wondering, quote, who might fill the intellectual void that plagued me after James Baldwin died. Clearly, it is Ta-Nehisi Coates. The language of Between the World and Me, like Coates' journey, is visceral, eloquent, and beautifully redemptive, and its examination of the hazards and hopes of black male life is as profound as it is revelatory. This is required reading. So my question to you is, which was more exciting for you, to be praised by Toni Morrison or criticized by David Brooks? Oh, of course, to be praised by Toni Morrison. That's not even close. Um, <laughs> all right. I just had to ask because I wasn't sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure who no. had more intellectual heft and weight. <laughs> No, 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 no. No comparison. No. Not even, right, <laughs> no. not even on a comedic level. We won't even go there. Right. No. Just making sure. Um, <laughs> can you explain what what that felt like when you heard about that, the Toni Morrison comment? Uh, I was stunning. I mean, I, I didn't really know what to do. I mean, it, um, I don't, you know, publishers try to get blurbs, um, and I hate blurbs, I hate blurbing, and I hate being blurbed. Um, <laughs> I don't generally like it. And, um, you know, I, I did some book because it was so small. I really, because it was so dear to me, I didn't want it festooned with blurbs. Um, but, um, you know, that was what they was gonna, what they were going to do. And um, when I, you know, thought about it, when I talked to my editor, um, you know, like, you know, you come up with this, this, this list of dream blurbs, and, you know, I, I was like, well, what if we just have one? And the two people who I wanted to do the one was either Tony Morrison or, you know, Dr. Rowe. Um, Dr. O was too ill at the time to even read the book, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are, you know, two, two, two of my, two of my great literary lights. And so, um, that was, they were the people I wanted talking about this book, you know? I mean, we got all the blurbs and that, that was cool because that's what the publisher is supposed to do. Um, well, you know, as publishing is constructed right now. But, you know, when I, when I, when I saw that she actually did it, I was just, <laughs> I mean, I was blown away. Right. I, was, I was completely blown away. Now, I've been listening to a bunch of your uh, interviews and, and speaking engagements and podcasts of you. And a lot I'm, of them. A lot. A lot and congratulations, them. because you I can't believe you're still standing. Although, for all I know, you're lying I'm down. ever present. Yes, ever <laughs> present. Um, omnipresent. And yeah. I'm kind of amazed by how much people demand or ask that you stand in for an entire kind of population. Um, mm -hmm. And how kind of... oh. I, I'm not surprised that people expect that of you or hope that of you, because I think as you referred to this in one of your responses to someone who was telling you that the narrative wasn't female enough. And you said, well, that just means that there need to be more narratives. And you weren't mm -hmm. being dismissive. I thought that you handled no, that question. Not yeah. But it, it does surprise me to the extent to which people are so open about that, that they kind of wear it on their sleeve, that they're, that they're demanding this from you. And I was wondering how you reconcile kind of your role as a writer, and you very much uh, claim that title, uh, rightly, sh as you should, how you reconcile that with also a response, not a responsibility, but you clearly are interested in, in, your, in your writing provoking something, correct? 
you you just you, um, do, you say you're not an activist that you're a writer, but you're no, I, 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 right. I hope it, I hope people read it and I hope they feel it. I mean, that, that's 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 what I want. You know, what I want is you know people I write about the ideas I write about. I want them to you know lodge themselves uh, within the you know the midriff of the reader, and for the reader to you know think about it uh, when he or she goes to bed wake up thinking about it, think about the next day, and think about it for as long as I can make them think about it. Right. You know, you, you want to touch them. You want to, you know, really get inside them. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, uh, people wanting you to do something beyond that and, and represent, um, I understand where that comes from, which is why I'm not dismissive, you know. Um, there's certainly, you know, certain narratives, you know, in, in, our, in our society um, that do not enjoy the same sort of prominence that other narratives. I enjoy um, the particular poignancy and, and, and pain, um, and the specific kind of plunder has been visited, you know, upon black women. Um, does not enjoy the visibility that it deserves. I understand that. Um, I just don't think the way to do it is to, you know, um, and, and you know, we can go on. We can go on, you know, through, through other experiences within, you know, African American life. But I just don't think the way to do it is to pile all of that onto an 150 page book. I think you just need more books. Um, that that's that's what you do. Um, you don't ask a book to stand in and speak for everything. Um, I don't know how you write an entire book that covers the the entirety, the nuance, um, the depth of the African American experience. I don't know how you do that. Right, and then of course it becomes problematic if someone is speaking for other people, right? I mean, in less so. I mean, I don't I don't worry about that too much. Oh, okay. I mean, I really don't worry about that too much. Um, I, I I don't know that you know you have to be a member of a group to you know really articulate the kind of pain out of that group feels. I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, about the African-American experience, you know, from from white writers, to be honest, from mm. white historians. So um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I just, I, I do think that, um, you know, we need more books. Um, we need, you know, more writers, <laughs> right. you know, who can write those books. Um, and probably most important uh, of all, and this gets missed repeatedly, uh, we need more editors, you know, who can make, you know, who can green light the books and give the books the kind of attention that they need. Uh, to bring them up, up up to quality, and we just don't have that right now. So when you say that you want the, the reader to think about your writing and think about it more the next day, what then, if if you could, if you could live out a fantasy, right? And I know this is kind of an absurd question, but I think it's maybe related to reality on some level. What's like... The, what would they do with that after feeling it and thinking about it? Like, what would they go out and do? And I know that you're not saying that this is a manual for action or a manifesto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I, I can't really do that, though. You, you know what I mean? Like that. That it, that almost feels like a betrayal because um, what you want is that what you're trying to achieve is a kind of liberate a liberation. You know what I mean? An intellectual independence, and you hope the book pushes people in that direction. Um, you know, just to be more critical about their world. Now, what they go and do policies they support with what you know what, what they think needs to happen in the country it, it almost feels like it would be a betrayal to work for me to tell them what that what that was um because you know especially between the world and me it's very much about how i came to you know way you know to the way i saw things on my own through my own exploration and more than anything like that's what i'm promoting i i, I don't you know want to say you know uh the object is to get you to think like i think right um, that that feels like it limits the book. So, so what about with something like the case for reparations? Now, that's clearly this is this very seminal article, feature article that you wrote in 2014 in June for the Atlantic, and that was called the case for reparations, right? So, mm-hmm. there's a difference between journalism and memoir, right? Do you right, have right. how do you how do you kind of balance those two things, and how do you figure out what you want to pursue at what time? Um. 
just whatever grabs me, mm-hmm. you know? It's like whatever really, really arrests me, whatever I'm excited by. And I was, I was deeply, at the time I wrote that article, I was deeply, deeply excited about. You know, it basically occurred to me that the reparations argument was correct. Um, and that not only was it correct, I mean, more exciting to me was the fact that it could be made through the tools of journalism, by which I mean you could find living people, you know, who you felt were owed reparations. And that I had never really seen, you know, and that, that just as a storytelling challenge just totally exciting. And so when you went into that article, you were, what was your opinion of reparations? Or what was your analysis? When I went to the article that they were owed. Okay, so at that point you had already, okay. Yeah, yeah, by that point I believed it. Do you remember your thinking Um, before when you didn't believe it? Yeah, I certainly do, yeah. I I, um, I think like I was a much more standard, you know, uh, issue liberal Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that I thought that, you know, many of the problems in the African-American community you know, it could be fixed by, you know, class-based solution. Um, and then as increasingly, you know, I saw more research around segregation, as I saw more research around community poverty, um, it became clear that, you know, um, when people, that, that the black people themselves are a class in and of themselves, that one can't, you know, sub in out, you know, the black middle class and the white middle class. It's, these are different groups of people that racism it, itself is an injury not just, uh, you know, a different kind of, you know, classism, that it is an injury in and of itself, that black poor people have been injured, that black middle-class people have been injured, that black, quote-unquote, rich people have been injured. Um, you know, I, I, you know, in the way that, like, sexism injures women. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter, you know, that, that some of those women are rich. You know, just being rich does not mean that, you know, you, you're, you're not injured, or you can't be injured by, by sexism. When I could recognize it, that as, a, as an interest in and of itself, um, well, that changed things. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you remember what made you realize that? The research. The research, okay. The research. Yeah, I mean, just, just the research. I mean, like, what, what, listen, I mean, once you get to the point that you realize, that's not, and I think I, by the time I, I had come around, by the time I saw this, statistic, but, you know, this is one that just gets it across, you know, very, very clearly for me. Um, a sociologist down at um, NYU, Patrick Sharkey, did, did some research. And he, you know, he was looking at what, what was called neighborhood poverty. And what that means is that regardless of whether, you know, what, what the wealth or, or the income is for, you know, an individual family, um, you know, because people usually go family to family in terms of comparison. Well, folks have really started doing sociology was compared neighborhoods to neighborhoods because you might have a relatively wealthy family and still have more exposure to neighborhood poverty uh, than some other wealthy family because of where you live. So, you know, like one way to get this across is like, an average African-American family in America that, you know, makes about $100,000 a year, and that's a good amount of money for a family in America, um, tends to live in the kind of neighborhood around the kind of poverty that a white family that makes $30,000 a year lives around. So when, when you can see it like that, when you, when you can begin to, you know, really, you know, see that, you know, the, 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 the acquisition of things, um, the acquisition of money, the acquisition of wealth really is not enough you know, to get you out. In fact, you know, often what it does is actually paints a target on your back to be plundered. Right. Um, and again, once I could see that, it was like, oh, wow, it's- yeah. Uh, Ken, I, I actually found it really interesting how in the uh, reparations article you dealt with sort of something that seemed kind of benign on the surface, but just re- real estate as uh, as sort of the the um, and how sort of predatory real estate and mortgage lending was uh, towards the African American middle class. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that for any of the listeners that aren't quite familiar with that. Sure. I mean, we you know. We we built our middle class through housing. 
period. I mean, that's just the facts of it. Um, uh, we, um, and it was through, you know, housing backed by social policy. Um, during the, you know, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, through the FHA, through FHA loans, through the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, through uh, the GI Bill. You know, we basically went around the country and told banks that we would subsidize loans for people. Um, one group of people we decided we did not do that for, and that was African Americans. Um, and so this was, like, considered, you know, arguably the greatest wealth-building opportunity, certainly the greatest subsidized wealth-building opportunity, opportunity in the 20th century. And black people were systematically cut out of it. And so the, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, great distance and wealth that springs from that, you know, and not just from the immediate process, but from, you know, because, you know, wealth compounds all over the years, you know, uh, and from segregation and from being made vulnerable to, you know, other forms of plunder, through, you know, uh, um, illicit loans and other sorts of things. Um, you, you begin to understand what the, uh, why the African-American community is in the condition that it's It's interesting because when you were talking about the, your realization with reparations and how black, being black, you know, was an injury in itself, right? And and you could be in a certain class and you could... No, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Racism is an injury in and of itself. I just want to be really clear about that. Oh, sorry. Mar- um, what did you... Uh, target, I meant... How it was... I just confused those two things. How being... No, 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 no. I think... No, I think actually it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really important point because I think, like, oftentimes the way we discuss this, we say, well, if you're black, you suffer from such and such. But I think it's really, really important to say... No, no, no. It's the racism that does the thing. Right. There's you know, nothing like, inherent. Blame exactly, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. That's right. And you actually talk about this a lot in much of your writing, and especially in Between the World and Me, how much that's changed through history. And we have this idea that there's kind of this immutable black identity. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting the way you talk throughout the book about people who believe they are white. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at it at this you expose these labels as constructions, social constructions, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is that, and this is something I think a lot of people struggle with, how is it that we, at the same time, acknowledge that these things are constructions um, and that they're very much about power? And you even say, in one of the interviews I heard you and you talk about kind of the human condition and how every how this is kind of, it's a question of power more than anything else. But mm-hmm. how do you kind of explain to people, yes, these things are constructions, but they're n- and they're not inherent, but they're very significant and not meaningless, and that people's well, lives are shaped easily. by them? Yeah. About relatively easily. Um, racism causes injury. Race is a construction. You, you see what I'm saying? Right. Racism is it's not race that... You know, you know, so I think, like, one of the things that... Um, we do need this conversation. We say race is a, is a social construct, but, you know, uh, we still can have racial problems, that race still can be the basis for great harm. But I think, like, what you need to do is dial it back another level. No, it's not that race is the basis for great harm. Racism, that's yeah. the difference. That's yeah. the difference. So, you know, race is a social construct, but the injury is not done, you know, uh, 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 on the basis of race. It's done on the basis of racism. It's very important. And I can, you know, if I'm not being clear, I can, you know, distinguish the two even more if you would like. Um, the, the, the notion uh, that we have in our, in our conversation right now is that you, you have, you know, pure races. So, so a black race and a white race, and these folks don't get along. Therefore, there is racism. Um, in fact, it's the other way around. There is racism. The exploitation happens first. Slave trade happened before right. we had any sort of coherent one-drop rule. You know, folks were trading slaves. That happened first. It's the, it's the, it's the taking. It's the plunder that is all, all, always first. And then the sorting comes after to justify the point. Right. So the ideology to, to 
to support the economic and financial plundering and right. exploitation, right? Right. right. That's exactly it. That comes, the classification comes afterwards. And so the, the ultimate thing that does the damage really is the racism. It's not, you know, the, the concept of, you know, certain people being darker than other people or certain people being lighter than other people. I mean, this, this is not the basis of anything at all. This has no meaning whatsoever. Um, what has meaning is the desire to take something from somebody and to justify right. the racism, the white supremacy. Right. That's the basis of the um, This is like important, you know, because um, uh, who was Justice um, Roberts? You know, he said, you know, like, like um, you know, and liberals get caught on this, you know. Um, he said, you know, um, in that Supreme Court case, I think it was striking, striking down some sort of affirmative action. And he says, you know, the way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating. Well, well, well that's frankly ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> right. part, a large part of government's job is to discriminate. Social security is discrimination, you know what I mean? Some people get it, some people don't. The problem is not, you know, discrimination, it's racism. That's the problem. That's the problem. You know, it may be fair to discriminate on, on, you know, on behalf of, you know, folks we've named black, you know, or not. But racism, which is a very, very different thing, is the problem. Right, and that, was that the decision that Sotomayor wrote that brilliant thing about um, in her dissent, where she talks mm-hmm. about how, the solution to ending racism isn't pretend something like isn't pretending that racism doesn't exist. Right, right, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. find that, but that was amazing. Um, but what was interesting before I made that big blund, uh, blunder that provoked this interesting conversation? Um, oh, you didn't blunder. You didn't blunder. Oh no, no, no! I wasn't. No. Oh, thank you. That's that's. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my website. As blurb. No, no, no. You're. Yeah, it's true. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's so nice. I'm just intimidated because I, you know, you, you don't think this, but we all think you're a genius. The three of us in this room. So, okay. I just took a deep breath. Humble. He's a humble G. This is partly. Thank you, but this is partly why you know I I reject the label because it's a done thing. Like, is it like you have to have those sorts of conversations to get to that sort of class? It's not like you know you wake up and you say, aha. You know, like, you know, it's racism. I got it. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, it's complicated. It takes work to get to it. And I think, like, the label genius and all these other things connote some sort of inherent something or other, which is just BS. Right. Uh, just my little thing. Not, there it is. not big fans of the bell curve over <laughs> no, here. Right. No, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> um, my mom, I think, went to City College with him. He, he started out on the left. Wow, right? that's I, yeah. all of them did. I know. So many of, them did. So many of the neocons, they have like some kind of <laughs> PTSD from Marxism or something that sends right, them to the other right, side. Right. Either that or he right. was eating a lot of uh, paint chips that were made out of lead. That's true, too. <laughs> In New York, yeah, that's true. But what's interesting is when you talked about the the kind of the trap of racism and how you are kept in a certain position that even money can't buy you out of, right? In in a literal sense, with the housing example, um, it made me think uh, so much about your friend Prince Jones and how on that he kind of personified a, a very policy based discussion that we're having. In that he, as you said, he was the exemplary, worked twice as hard. His mother was a doctor, and he was born again. He had gone to Howard, and in the end, that didn't matter. Right. And and he was right. able to be killed and mistaken with a man who was um, way shorter than him and way heavier, right? Mm-hmm. So th- it's not mm-hmm. like they even fit the same description. And, of course, the ultimate, it's not an irony, actually. It's a totally consistent thing. But some people would see it as an irony, is that the policeman who killed him was himself black. No, I think that's that's not ironic at all. No, that's yeah. What, yeah. I, I'm saying yeah. Yeah. yeah, no. It's 
I'm agreeing with right, you. Right, right. That to me seems kind of like the personal example of of the policy that we're talking about in terms of how kind of deforming racism is. Mm-hmm. Or And mm-hmm. that had happened before you wrote the case for reparations, correct? Yes. So you kind of understood that on a personal level before you did on a policy level. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's probably, uh, but I didn't understand it. I just needed that something really, really wrong to happen. I, I didn't understand it. You know, it. I couldn't have explained it the way, you know, I you know, explained it in the book in no way. No, I, I, it had happened and I was in pain. Uh, but that's about as far as I can take it. Got it, right. I mean, there's so much in your book that's really moving and heartbreaking. And that, knowing that th- you go through the expenses that his mother paid and, and went through, and it's not to... Well, I try to imagine. You match, right. <laughs> Sorry, yes, right. Yeah. And it's not that you're kind of monetizing the, the, your friend or turning him into some kind of object. But the, there was mm-hmm. something about the, the mundane aspect of that that right. was especially heartbreaking because it's just something we kind of don't think about. Um, just the, mm-hmm. the investment that parents put in their children and then having yeah. them taken away from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, that, that's how you you know. I mean, when you're trying to get somebody to feel it, that's that's how you you know you do it. You you try to take those little details of life that folks you know look over and you know and show how it you know comprises a human being. Right. And how much of this you talk about a lot about how much your kind of understanding of the world changed with the birth of your son. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this this anecdote from the Upper West Side, and I have to apologize because I am from the Upper West Side. Although, when I was growing up there, thank you, thank you. (laughs) When I was growing up there, it was a little bit uh, less bougie than it is now. A little bit Mm -hmm. less yuppified. But you you described this white woman pushing your son, who at the time is a toddler, I believe, Mm -hmm. and saying, come on, or something, right? And you have an interaction with her, and then you feel... Um, guilty about it. Can you can you just set this up a little bit, and then for the listeners, you thought that you kind of lo- lost your cool a, li- a little bit. And my question for you is like, how do you? What is the correct response to something like this? I, well, I, I mean, that was what I was trying to get across more than anything. I mean, I, I don't know if there is right. Right. I, mean, I, can't, I can't tell you that there is one. Um, we were coming down the escalator, and she pushed my son. Know, um, and I couldn't understand how anyone would get it in their head that it was correct to put your hands on a child like that. Like when somebody else, I just didn't. It was beyond my capacity to understand it. So we got into uh, a little bit of a shouting match, and I think what bothered me more than anything was not the shouting match that we got into, but there was a man who was standing off to the side and clearly could only see, um, you know, this big black dude, you know, yelling at this, you know, you know, smaller, much smaller white woman. And he jumped into the middle of it, and I was watching it, and I, and I guess what bothered me was, I, like, he should have been defending my son. <laughs> right. Right, especially if it's yeah, about he vulnerability, been. right? Yeah, I mean, in a fair world, he would have been defending my son. Um, but he wasn't. And so it was, you know, and then, you you know, he said, you know, I could have, because I, I pushed him. I got, we got really you know, into it. I pushed him, I could have you arrested. You know, and that was like when I, really felt like, you know, I had put my kid in danger, you know, even even in my response, I'd put him in danger. Right. And you write, you say, um, 
I have told the story many times, not out of bravado, but out of a need for absolution. I have never been a violent person, even when I was young and adopted the rules of the street. Anybody who knew me knew it was a bad fit. I've never felt the pride that is supposed to come with righteous self-defense and justified violence. So how do you, how do you go about, I mean, this is just as an example, what is the way that you would have, in retrospect, responded? I mean, and, and you said that there's no correct response, so, so maybe the question isn't even about that. It's about how do we make a world where stuff like this doesn't even happen. I mean, that, that may sound kind of Pollyanna-ish, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that was, and that was sort of the point of, the, you know, of putting that in there. I mean, it's, it's a trap. Right. It's a trap. It's a puzzle. How do you get out? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And it reminds me of what you said on, also in, your, in Between the World and Me. You, you're writing, obviously, you're, you're addressing your son. You say, you cannot forget how much, you have to make your peace with the chaos. But you cannot lie. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. Which I thought that mm-hmm. was like such a beautiful sentence. Um, but is that the struggle every day? That I mean, how do, how how does one do those two things at the same time? I'm sorry. Which two things? I'm not. Oh, understand. sorry. Which the um, making your peace with the chaos without forgetting. Um, well, I, you know, I think like those two things aren't actually in conflict. I mean, you know, um, you you don't make to to make your peace is not to say you know um, I'm okay with this. <laughs> you know, okay. it's to say that you know this is the condition of the world. Right. Um, and it might not be you know I might not have it you know enough power to really change it, but I have to live you know and I have to remember how the chaos came about. Right. And do you? I don't know if you're a fan of Eduardo Galeano at all, but that. Uh or if you've read The Open Veins of Latin America. I think there's something, a lot of what of your writing when you write about history reminds me of his. He's, he's very lyrical and poetic and has this kind of beautiful mix of personalizing history and imagining the, the personal history. Um, yeah, Open Lanes of Latin America. That's actually the book that Hugo Chavez gave to Obama. I don't know if you remember that. And it became like a big. I do remember yeah, that. that's what it was. I yeah. do remember that. Um, and he's like especially beautiful in the original in Spanish. But um, Gabe, did you have another question about DC? No. Oh I no. Wanna, I want to talk about comic books. Oh yeah, go go. <laughs> if, <laughs> that's if, what I want. Tanisi, what's uh, what's going on with the Black Panther? Um, I'm writing it. That's uh, that's amazing. <laughs> I have a question for you. What what makes him uh, compelling to you? What's one? Like, of all the characters, why Black Panther? Well, it wasn't my choice. They asked me, you know, did I want to write Black Panther? And um, it it went from there. Um, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really read any Black Panther, but I had to go back, you know, over them and, um, you know, try to get an education. You know, I spent much of the summer trying to do that. Um, But, no, they they asked me to do it. That was the reason I did it. All right. Okay. I mean, do you want to keep it under wraps until it comes out? Is this... Uh, yes. Okay. Got it. That's cool. <laughs> no. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, to your to your take on him. That's all. Uh, you've been in my head for like the last couple weeks. I have um, I have between the world and me on Audible. I just finished it. So uh, to see that you're going to be doing a comic book, and I'm a huge fan of those. Well, when you've you've mentioned um, how you feel kind of an absence of this burden and weight when you're in other countries. Um, you you said this to John Stewart, for instance, and you Mm -hmm. very kind of, um, critically said that you realize that there are other people in those countries who don't have that. 
status. Right. In other words, they kind of right. feel the, the weight and burden that you are relieved of. Um, right. I, I was wondering if you could kind of explain or elaborate on which people you're talking about and also if you think that that will change the more time you spend there. I think it'll change the better my French gets. Ah, that right. <laughs> right. So you're. I gotta keep that American edge to it. So you're you're taken as American before anything else when you're abroad. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, most certainly, most certainly. Um, and so I, you know, um, I think um, I don't know that 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 seems pretty ordinary. You know, um, the basic idea is, um, as, as I said, you know, um, racism is a thing, and so it, you know, it's a history. It's it's a done thing that really, really, you know, uh, punishes people. And so, um, like, when you go to France, like, you, you are not the people with whom they, they, you know, you are not the people that they plundered. Because they think, right. It, it, I mean, actually, it's different. I mean, you aren't, you know, from the colonies. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that that is not an original thought. I mean, you know, uh, folks who, are, you know, come from the continent or come from the Caribbean, you know, they say the same thing about, you know, their, their attitudes towards America tend to be very different than African-Americans. You know, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that one thinks that the society is without racism. But um, uh, it's different. It's just different. Do you think that there's also a, a specific specificity in terms of how incredibly armed the state is in the United States? Um, yeah, that's a huge part of it. I mean, that, that's that, you know, what that, but that, that, that's different. Um, because like, um, like what I'm talking about is like the specificity of, of the sin of what was done. Um, but at the same time, what you said is, 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 is correct. I mean, it basically is, um, you know, the kind of violence that attends racism here. Right. Um, is, is, you know, very, very different because of the presence of guns. They just, I mean, physically, I don't worry for my child in the same way. Right. Like, in, I've spent a lot of time in Spain for various reasons, but they'll say things that, that they don't say here about, you know, like the Moors. They actually still use that word, some people. Right. But, um, right. and, they're, and I'm not whitewashing or sugarcoating it, but and they say very offensive, problematic things. But again, I think that and my friends who I know who have traveled in Spain who are uh, black have talked about how much safer they feel there, even if mm-hmm. people will say things to their face that 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 most yeah, people yeah, no, 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 because the, the guns change everything. Right. The guns just change everything, you know. And I, like what, what I was trying to say is like it's it's important not you know to avoid. Um, any sort of like fetishization, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, because you know the, the feeling is not like you know you know you reach some non-racist utopia. Listen, France is just a place that I like, right? Right. Um, and that's it. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that pretty that pretty much it. It is not an escape. Um, it is not a um, as I said, you know, a, a, you know, a post-racist retreat. It's right. a place I like. Like I like New York, by the way. Right. You know, like I love New York. I love, love I, I adore New York. Um, that does not mean that I think that there's no racism in New York when I say that. <laughs> right, like Eric Gardner happened in New York, right? It oh, happened in New thing. York. Right. Yeah, that thing. It happened yeah. in New York, right. Which is, yeah, very disturbing. Um, yeah, that was, that was, I couldn't get over that. Um, even though I know that's, like you said, in one of the, one of the, parts of the book you talked about actually the part that we were just talking about about how you when that man said to you that you could get arrested that he could have you arrested and you said um 
I could have you arrested, he said, which is to say, quote, one of your son's earliest memories will be watching the men who sodomized Abner Luima and choked Anthony Baez, cuff, club, tase, and break you, end quote. Um, which is, so I couldn't, it's, it's kind of funny that, not funny, it's interesting that something like the Eric Garner case was shocking, even though we've seen such a history, even in, you know, progressive New York City, of impunity towards the police. Um, the perpetual state of blaming the victim, regardless of how many uh, scenarios that has been presented, you know. Oh, right, because Eric Garner, I liked when right. they pretended it was because he was um, out of shape. Out of shape, he was uh, he was asthmatic. Right. He shouldn't have been uh, smoke. Uh, he shouldn't have been selling cigarettes. Whatever the case, right. it was always the fault of the victim. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for giving us sharing some of your time with us. We know how incredibly busy you are, and um, we're so excited that you came on the show. And we're going to encourage our listeners to go and donate and. They will get a copy of your book, which I'm sure will cause them to f- be flooding the lines. Anything you want to say in the last minute um, that we have you for? Anything you want to tell readers? Anything you want to tell listeners? No, um, you know, thank you uh, for having me, and thank you to those who you know have read the book. Um, and those of you who have not read the book, it's okay. <laughs> you, you offer them absolution. Okay. You offer them absolution. You don't have anything oh, to I want to know something. A reading to get done. You talk about taking French in school and how it was so un. Unimp- you didn't understand why, and of course, coming full circle now, it is kind of, kind of justice that you did right. Was why not Spanish? Because my wife likes Paris. Ah, uh, okay, no, got it. Oh, really like Paris, you know. Right. Um. Yeah. No. Same thing. I mean, it's just you know, it's just a place. Right. Okay, and your son's French, you said, is pretty good? I heard you say okay. that. Okay, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You guys have a great day. Great, you too. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, guys. That was Tanahasi Coates. Kind of amazing. You have heard him speaking on the Katie Halper Show, and you have the chance to donate to the Katie Halper Show and get his book. Get his book? Yeah. Get his book. I mean, Chase, he um, was just so nice, by the way, besides being, you know, like, I'm not going to call him a genius because he doesn't like that. Humble genius. So humble. And soft-spoken, but profound. Profound, yeah. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. So you're definitely going to want to call up. Uh, 212-209-2950. And once again, for a pledge of $120, you can get the book, between the world and me, uh, by Tanahishi Coates, and um, or if you want to get that book as well as Chasing the Scream, which is also done by another brilliant um, author, uh, Johan Hari. Well, you could get both books for a pledge of one hundred and fifty dollars. Two one two. Such a great deal. It, it is. I said I, that's why I looked at you. You're a mad woman. I know. You're you're, you're crazy. Yeah, you're out your mind. I know. 212-209-2950 or go to give2wbai.org on the web. Once again, for a pledge of $150, you can get Between the World and Me by Tanahishi Coates and Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. And we'll be talking to Johan Hari next week. That's going to be crazy, yeah, too. Yeah, it's going to be great. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, you know, good job. 
I think good job on that one. Great really good package, job on that. Yeah. But really, listeners out there, this is one. This is one of the reasons why you should support WBAI Radio because really, you're not going to get this anyplace else but here on WBAI. Like you know, Gabe, rattle off the list of people that that was on this show already. Oh, we had Margaret Cho, we had um, uh, Ava Farkas, we had Judah Friedlander, we had Ted Alexandro, we just did Tanahisi Coates. Tanahisi Coates. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great wow. guests. Yeah. That's, that's Emily Nussbaum's coming on. Oh, can't Irene wait. Carmone to talk about Notorious RBG. Oh. With Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Some great okay. people lined up. Ali, oh, Ali. Garib. Yeah. Oh, Ali Garib. Yeah. Oh, he was oh, yeah, here yeah. when I was out of yeah. town. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. That's right. Justin Williams also sat oh, in Justin once. Williams Justin great, Williams. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is only a short amount of time that you've been on. Right. I mean, and you're going to continue gonna on. Yeah, and you're going to continue on with that narrative. Yes. So as we progress on to the next program, please consider becoming a financial supporter to this radio station once again, real fast, 212-209-2950, or go to give to wbaiorg on the web. Whatever you can pledge is great, but what we are offering during this hour is uh, the book Chasing... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the Between the World and Me, by ta uh, Coates. By ta Coates. And for very, like for 30 more dollars, you get a double package of that and Chasing the Two Stream. great books for a small pledge, relatively small pledge of $150. 212-209-2950 or go to give2wbai.org on the web. And really, show your appreciation of the efforts. And, and because, believe me, behind the scenes... Katie drives me crazy every time. She mm -hmm. gives me so much yes. information. I'm just like, oh, I'm drowning in information. And she somehow makes it coherent here. 212-209-2950. And uh, give to WBAI.org on the web. The next show is coming up. Any last words, Katie? No, just check us out on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud. Follow us on iTunes. Rate us. Review us. And we'll be back next week with Johan, talking to Johan Hari. Okay. Yeah. Tune in next week six to seven all Thank right you.